Welcome to another episode of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, with co-host Tim Langer. Moin, moin. Today's episode, we'll be talking about achieving optimal human performance through breath, movement, and recovery. Today's guest is Coach PJ Nessler. Coach PJ, PJ is a human performance specialist with over a decade of experience preparing top athletes for competition. Over the past 12 years, Coach PJ has trained thousands of athletes from a variety of sports, including dozens from UFC, NFL, NHL, and MLB. Outside of training top athletes, Coach PJ is devoted to sharing his knowledge and experience with the purpose of elevating the fitness profession. He has spent the past six years developing and teaching educational curriculums and certifications for health, fitness, and performance professionals around the world. In his current role as Director of Performance for XPT, he is, pre- he is responsible for the research and development of all programs and curriculums around XPT's Breathe, Move, Recover philosophy. Coach PJ, welcome to the show, bud. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No problem. All right. I mean, kind of tell us how you got to where you're at today. How did you become a human performance specialist? How did you get to XVT? Just kind of give us the rundown. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the quick overview. I, I've been passionate about fitness exercise since I was in middle school. I was always an athlete and I got into training. I was a skinny kid and I started lifting weights back in like six, I think seventh grade. I got into strength training. And, you know, back then it was mostly bodybuilding stuff I would read about, but pretty much all I would do in my free time was go to the gym, read bodybuilding magazines, uh, read books about, uh, I was a football and lacrosse player. So I'd read books about preparing for football. And that was just something I was super interested in. And that's where I spent my free time. And, uh, when I went to college, I didn't think I could make a career out of that. So I ended up going to college for business and luckily I played football for a year, I walked onto the football team at the University of Rhode Island and worked with a strength and conditioning coach there. And that's when I saw the opportunity in strength and conditioning to do something that I thought was was awesome, working with collegiate athletes. So I switched my major over to kinesiology and started going full force into that. Um, had some good mentors early on who, who got, gave me the advice to volunteer everywhere I could. So I was volunteering at sports performance facilities, um, at the University of Rhode Island Strength and Conditioning Department, uh, pretty much everywhere I could, I was volunteering. So by the time I graduated college, I had more hands-on coaching experience than which I I didn't realize at the time until I started actually hiring coaches. Um, I had a lot more hands-on coaching experience than most people do when they get out of college. And I worked in the I, I wanted to get into collegiate strength and conditioning, so I actually got a job pretty quickly out of college. Um, as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, well, an intern at first, a paid intern. And then I worked my way pretty quickly up into um, an assistant strength and conditioning coach. So I spent a few years in the college sector early in my career. And then I wanted to move to California. I wanted to get out of the Northeast. And I was also started training MMA at the time. So I really wanted to work with MMA fighters. Uh, so I moved, I just packed up and moved to Southern California and started working in the private sector out here in a few different performance facilities, uh, you know, running boot camp, everything from fitness boot camps to little kids speed classes to NFL combine training and um, everything in between. And then as I worked through my career, I ended up becoming the director of the facility I was at. Um, so I started managing people. I started, um, you know, the way I always thought about things, I, I struggled to find 
my brain works in systems. I like to have a system and a pathway and a structure for everything for developing athletes. And what I felt like a lot of the places I worked, it was like, we just did things, you know, we did drills and we did exercises, but I never really, at least I couldn't comprehend when an athlete comes to me, here's where they start. Here's where they should be on week four. Here's where they should be on month seven. Um, so I started developing that myself. And then when I became the director, my job was to teach that to other coaches. So that's what started getting me into the education side of things and, and developing systems. And I just started teaching our interns and teaching our new coaches how I viewed performance training and how I trained my athletes. And uh, that was 2013 when I became the performance director. And then over the past seven years, I, I then became the regional director of a few facilities. So I was now managing more people and creating bigger curriculums and business structures. Uh, and then in 2017, I left that company to start my own business, which was geared towards trainer education. I, I really enjoyed that side of things. Um, I saw there was a huge missing link. A lot of these coaches that were coming to work at our facility were just missing. They were graduating with master's degrees and they had no idea any of the things that I thought were most important about conducting yourself as a fitness professional and training people, training athletes. Um, so that's what I kind of dedicated my career to do. And a few months into that, I actually got connected with some people through XPT and they reached out and said that they had this really amazing concept and they were running these retreats that were changing people's lives, but they wanted to develop it into more of a structured curriculum and scale it and, and teach it to coaches and trainers. And it just happened that I was doing that for my own business at the time. And it was a perfect, perfect timing, a perfect sync of, of my skills and expertise and passions and, and their need. Um, so I was fortunate to be brought on by XPT in 2017 and uh, that's pretty that's what I've been doing since then. That's awesome. I mean, before we go into XBT and what it is and what you guys have been working on, I want to touch a little bit on the fact that you went from business to human performance specialist. <laughs> you know, I think that for a lot of times, uh, first of all, when people go to college, they, a lot of times they don't know what to do. But uh, the fact that you were able to find something that you loved and you were interested in and really made not only a career, but a career on it, but you actually are helping to change and mold what uh, human performance uh, should look like or is uh, looking like nowadays. Um, but a lot of times and what we talked about a lot on the show uh, with multiple uh, guests is how do I become the best, right? How can I be able to give this experience to either patients or uh, clients? Uh, and a lot of times it's kind of like what you said, right? Trying to find uh, people that you can connect with, coaches that are, are uh, developing or using philosophies that uh, you think are important and uh, really taking the time to learn from them. I think a lot of people tend to say, hey, okay, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get my master's degree or, hey, I'm going to go get this certification. Awesome. Those are kind of like uh, uh, bridges, right? But ultimately, and for me, for sure, is always being able to spend that time with the coach uh, that can teach you the hands-on stuff. Because uh, usually experience, especially in that realm, is what really makes a difference compared to another practitioner or another coach. Um, so that's awesome to hear your your journey going from not knowing anything about kinesiology and uh, working your way, trying to find the avenue for you to be able to not only understand, but learn more about the human body and, and what uh, and how to best prepare it. So that was awesome to hear. 
Yeah. And I, that's actually the biggest advice I always give to everybody who reaches out to me. I, I get a lot of people who reach out, especially when I was at these facilities that wanted internships or just advice on the career path. And the biggest piece of advice I think I got, and I was fortunate uh, and that I saw a lot of people missing when they'd come to apply for jobs with me was the hands-on experience. And so I always tell people, find a mentor, find multiple mentors and go in the field. College is great. You need to learn the information. You've got to have the background, but it will not prepare you for what you want to do. 99% of what I do on a day-to-day basis with athletes is, are they're all things that I've learned in the field. So mm-hmm. you've got to get in, get the experience, learn from coaches. Um, and, and of course, you know, you've got to have the education background. If I didn't have the education background, I would not be able to do what I'm doing now. Uh, mm-hmm. But, and I wouldn't have been able to understand things as quickly. But yeah, I, th- I think that's just such a crucial thing. And, and anybody who's listening, who's at all interested in getting involved in the fitness profession, you got to find people who are really, really good at what they do and that you agree with their philosophies or maybe not. I mean, I work for people that I didn't agree with their philosophies at all, but they've actually mm-hmm. shaped me into the person I am today in, in some other ways that I didn't know back then. So you really learn from getting in and just being around the people who are doing it uh, and doing what you think you want to be doing. And real quick, you talked about systems and, and processes. Uh, I don't think a lot of people, first of all, I don't think a lot of people uh, understand the importance of that. Not only like business and operational side, but just getting yourself to think systematically, have a systematic approach uh, to healthcare, to fitness, to strength conditioning. Uh, it sets you up. Uh, it sets you up to be able to use your skill set how it's meant to be. Right. Uh, I, I was infamous earlier on in my career to kind of wing it. <laughs> I was really good at understanding what a person needed at the moment and then do it then. But what I started noticing is if I can plan ahead, if I can systemize things little by little, uh, things that I started doing more frequently, uh, things that were more common and kind of create a structure around it. Obviously, depending on the person you were working with, with a patient or a client, uh, things are going to diversify a little bit. But most of the time, if you understand kind of how to work certain situations and it, uh, more consistently, that's when the, where I find a lot of results starts to happen. That's where not only that, but then you start to be able to explain to other people what you're doing, how you can help them rather than just saying, Oh, like, this is what I, this is what I do. You can actually be able to kind of help them visualize, uh, what their experience is going to be like and what the end result is going to be like. Uh, and that's something that I'm starting to do a lot more within my business now. Uh, because it's super important having those systems, having those uh, processes in place, uh, so yeah, you're a little bit more prepared. So I, that, the fact that you mentioned that was awesome as well. Yeah, I think you hit on two major important things there. One being, I think a lot of us when we get into the industry, we we learn exercise. You know, personal mm-hmm. trainers they learn exercises, and eventually they kind of learn how to put those together in a workout. But but that's what you do. You're you're put you're giving people workouts. And mm-hmm. people come in and I come up with something off the top of my head and I give you a good workout. You get sweaty, you feel like it worked. And then you come back hopefully the next day and we keep doing workouts and eventually we hope we get somewhere. And in sports performance is very similar, but we learn drills. I remember when I first started working at sports performance facilities and I had a notebook where I would write down all the new ladder drills that I saw one of the trainers do that day. And I would, I would write down the new cone drills and it, my, my sessions were just a, a combination of drills that hopefully were going to make people faster and more athletic. And I started to realize later on that, that that's not an effective strategy because if you don't, you know, I, I always tell people, it's like 
if you start here in LA and you're trying to get to New York City, well, you could get in your car and just start driving in the general direction and you'll you might get somewhere close. Or I could give you a turn-by-turn directions roadmap and you're going to get there much faster, much more efficiently, and you're going to not waste fuel and time and money and all those things. So that's really our job as professionals. You know, I think the the difference between a, a fitness enthusiast and a fitness professional is we should be able to, like you mentioned, paint, figure out where we want this person to be and then reverse engineer that goal and break down the steps to get there so we can manipulate variables and, and we can paint them the picture for that. And I think once you're able to do that, and of course, it's not going to be a perfect plan because mm-hmm. the human body is not a textbook, but it creates a framework for you to then adapt off of. And you, you have some principles that are guiding you along the way. Um, and then you can use your art of coaching knowledge and your experience to manipulate that as you go. Um, but I think the second part of that, it, another big conversation I used to have with, with trainers was the sales process and how to discuss what they do. Mm-hmm. And I always used to tell people, you know, people are, are like, yeah, I just feel bad charging $120 a session. And I just have trouble communicating this and getting people to sign up. And how do you do that? And I was like, I have zero trouble whatsoever because I don't sell people sessions. I don't mm-hmm. sell workouts. When people come to me, I paint them the picture of, okay, here's where your goal is. I know I have the expertise to get them there. So I look at, okay, this is what one, you got to obviously break down to what that goal really is and what they want, what they really want, not like the surface level goal. But yeah, then, goal. Say, yeah. And if you can say, hey, okay, it's going to take you five months. And in five months, here's where you're going to be. And you paint them that picture. And then you're like, here's the process. It's going to cost you $6,000. And then it's like, okay, well, now I know what the goal is. And you're telling me that I'm going to be out of back pain, 20 pounds lighter. And able to play with my kids and, and, and be fit and active like I want to. And it's going to cost me $6,000. And then it comes down to, is that worth $6,000 to you? Versus is every single workout that I put together worth 120 bucks? And maybe those are going to get you somewhere closer to where you want to be. So I think that's a, a big point that people miss out on. And, and I had no problem communicating that with people and selling them that value. Um, but you've got to build that value from the front and you've got to know how to get there. Cause if I don't know that I can get you to that point in five months, then it's really hard for me to sell that. And that's where I think a lot of trainers are fighting an uphill battle because they're, mm-hmm. they're stuck in this framework of like, you know, learning exercises and selling workouts. And that's just, that's not worth $120. That's worth, you know, 25 bucks or, or 30 bucks, whatever the val- perceived value of, of going in and getting sweaty is. Um, but it's definitely not something that's worth that, the, uh, the high end value. Yeah. A lot of times we, we, we prioritize, uh, what's on the wall as far as like what certifications are on the wall or what certifications are behind our, are behind our name, uh, rather than creating this experience and creating this, uh, transformation, right. Creating this, uh, change of lifestyle, creating this change of conversation with the person that we're talking to, because ultimately that's what we're doing. It's not, I mean, anybody can go sweat, right? Anybody can go to the park and do some exercises. Anybody can give somebody some exercise, but uh, it's different when you can get somebody from point A to point Z and really get them to understand what they're truly capable of, uh, things that they, you know, things that how to be able to live more effectively things that they could be doing, uh, whether with you or outside of lifestyle wise, uh, those things are what people uh, 
tend to come in for. That's not what they ask for, right? They ask for, uh, hey, let me get out of pain. Hey, I want to move better. Hey, uh, I want to lose some weight. But in reality, once you start to kind of uh, strip off some of the layers, you tend to see what their internal goal is. Hey, I want to live longer. Hey, I don't want to uh, suffer like uh, someone in my family did with diabetes or with uh, osteoarthritis or whatever it may be. Or, hey, I've been seeing so-and-so with back pain or, hey, I don't want to miss uh, the workouts uh, like I have been in the past because it's really important to me. Uh, but sometimes it just takes a little more digging. Uh, and then also once you find that internal goal, like you mentioned, creating those systems, creating those, that almost like a pipeline, right? So that you can now uh, use those, that variability and uh, basically plug it into your system that you have already so that it's a little bit more effective. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, and those are things that I had to learn along the way, <laughs> right? You hear it, you hear it, you, you know, uh, a mentor says it. And I think, I know for myself, uh, it just things that I would try. Sometimes I would fail. Sometimes I would do really well. I would success in each time I would learn a little bit more about my system, a little bit more about my approach, and then adding certain courses, adding certain philosophies into um, my delivery of my system and my operational uh, process basically developed into what I do today. And I, I would almost uh, probably say is the same thing for, for someone like you who has all this uh, wealth of knowledge from various backgrounds, various of people that you're able to work with. And now you put it into, into one, right? I mean, the biggest example that I give all the time is Bruce Lee, right? Bruce Lee uh, studied almost any type of martial art, any type of movement, any type. That guy was the biggest philosopher I've ever seen in the martial arts realm. And that guy took everything that he could learn and put it into uh, his practice, right? He always said, be like water, right? Be, be able to be a sponge, be able to learn as much as you can, and then be able to adapt when necessary and implement when needed. So, I mean, again, those are things we can talk about all day. I know Tim uh, wants to ask you a question. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, just maybe moving a little bit along. So, um, you mentioned that you are now the director of performance for XPT. Maybe you can uh, let us uh, explain us a little bit more about what XPT stands for and, and what systems you have developed in that, in that area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so XPT is is the brainchild of Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. Um, and really, so XPT stands for extreme performance training, but really it's a lifestyle system that they developed over the course of the past 10 to, I mean, really exploring over the past 30 years, but more developed over the past 10 years. And it started just as the curiosity of Laird and Gabby looking to explore ways to train, to, to push their their bodies and their minds um, and to continue to do that to help them live a high performance lifestyle. And that that's what extreme performance is. It's, it's really operating at your highest possible potential in all areas of life. And that's how Laird and Gabby approach fitness training and life is, is let's not allow any one of, let's not allow being an expert in one area to completely um, neglect all these other areas. So mm -hmm. it just developed through their exploration of, of getting into the pool and, and having friends come over and trying different exercise and trying different breathing techniques and different domain experts would come in that are friends of theirs, like Kelly Starred and Wim Hof and uh, Patrick McEwen and all, all these different people who have their own unique expertise. And they would say, Hey, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? And, and they would just explore and do things. And what they realized over time was 
more people kept showing up to Laird's house to do this training regularly and, and kept saying that it was creating massive changes in their life and, and not just in their fitness. You know, they weren't just seeing improvements in blood markers or looking a little leaner or feeling a little better. It was, it was leaking into other areas of their life that, uh, that we usually don't hear about a lot in fitness. So they started, um, you know, they, they decided back in 2015 to start sharing it with other people outside of their close group of friends. And, um, they started running these retreats where people would come out for two and a half days and spend, uh, spend that time with Laird and Gabby and a few of the advisors like Wim and Kelly and, and some of the other people involved in the company. And, uh, they would just kind of take them through this lifestyle and just plug them into the way Laird and Gabby live. And hopefully people will learn some lessons from that, whether that's a lesson about spiritual connection or a lesson about breathing or fitness or nutrition, kind of all of the above, because it's, it's such a holistic lifestyle. Um, and they started doing that for a few years and these people would leave these weekend retreats and just say, you know, this, this completely changed my life and in so many different ways. So back in that was around uh, 2017 when I was hired and, and my job was to come in to this company that was that had was really based around these experiences and try to take some of that information and again put that into more of a curriculum and, and my my first job was to help get this out to more people we only run six of these retreats uh, we call them experiences we only run six of them a year uh, they cap out at about 25 participants. So we're pretty limited on the impact that we can have on people and, and they're, they're expensive. They're out in Malibu or Kauai and um, it's a, it's a high price point experience. So we were really limited on the people that we could impact or, or they were at the time. So my job was to see if I could take the information and put it into more of a process and a system and, and a structure that could be taught to other fitness professionals so that personal trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, physical therapists could learn some of these um, methodologies and then apply them to their practice so that they could go impact the thousands of people that they're going to work with and, and use some of these things. So um, in 2017, when I joined, I, I dove headfirst into the research behind breathing, uh, the movement, which we, our primary movement that's unique to XPT is water, but we really we have a lot of movement things that, that fall under the umbrella of XPT, but we're not really uh, taking a stand on trying to teach people um, mobility and stuff. We're not trying to re reinvent the wheel on those things. Um, and then the hot and cold exposure. So the saunas and ice baths, uh, particularly that we use. And I, I did a deep dive for about 12 months, uh, all day, every day. I, I took every breathing course in existence. I went I flew out to London to spend time with Patrick McEwen. Um, I, I read about eight books on breathing. I dug through all the research uh, together with Dr. Andy Galpin. We dug through all the research on um, saunas and ice baths to really create some protocols based on that. And then after a year or, or about, I think it was nine months, we we launched our, our level one certification, which again was just geared towards helping all types of fitness professionals understand this information and use it. The cool part for me was uh, the people that came to take our certification were so were from such different demographics. You know, I, I come from sports performance, mm -hmm. so my primary education stuff when I used to run it was 
the the things that I had expertise on that a lot of people didn't have experience with was NFL combine training and training UFC fighters, uh, which was really cool. But there's really not that many people out there that are ever going to train someone for the NFL combine or for the UFC. So it was cool, but it, it just wasn't as impactful. Um, and when we started running these courses, I mean, we had doctors, we had fitness enthusiasts, we have free divers and, and water, you know, professional surfers, uh, a lot of military special forces from different groups, uh, law enforcement, first responders, physical therapists, personal trainers, yoga practitioners. I mean, you name it. And these people have been a part of our course. And that was really cool to see and to see the ways that they could take this information and adapt it to their population. Yeah. I mean, one of your biggest tables, right, is, is this water movement. Can you tell us why you guys chose water and uh, what the importance of using this water for movement, using the breath, using the dumbbells that you guys use uh, within the pools? Yeah. And I mean, water is the most probably unique element to XBT. I would say it's not the most powerful, but definitely the most unique because, I mean, water was just a natural thing for Laird. He comes from surfing giant waves. So when he first started, the the training really started with the ancient Polynesian practice of swimming down 20, 30 feet, picking up a heavy boulder, walking as far as you can with it. And, uh, you know, doing that with a partner out in the ocean. And that's how they would improve their breath hold time and their relaxation underwater. And then when he built his house in Malibu, he just said, well, why don't we just do that in the pool with some dumbbells? <laughs> and that's how it started. And then he's got under there and started saying, well, what if, what if we did this? And we swam with the dumbbell and we jumped with the dumbbell and we, and they, they just started adapting exercises. And what they realized later on is, is there, there was a lot of other things happening, you know, from a physical standpoint, the water is just an amazing, an amazing place to train because of it, the, the unloading of the impact forces and the support of the water and also the pressure of the water and, and what that does for lymphatic flow, um, you know, from just a physical recovery standpoint and low impact standpoint, you know, you can mm -hmm. train pretty hard in the water, get similar benefits to land-based training in, in some, um, in certain instances or excuse me for certain adaptations and then at much less cost. So that was a big thing, but, but really what we saw shift over as well was the, the psychological benefit of training in the water. And that's where I think the most power of the water comes from. And honestly, the most power of XBT, it comes from the, the emotional side, the psychological side and, that people learn. And people don't leave an XBT experience and say it changed their life because they learned a couple of jumping exercises in the pool. Uh, they say it changed their life because of the psychological side. Uh, of all the things that we do, but I think the water is just such a unique element. Um, you know, it's just unique types of training. Cause for, for me, training in the water has always been like water aerobics or swimming laps and both of those suck. So I was never into it, you know, and I'm a surfer too, but I was never into it. And now I love getting in the water and training. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot, and the more research I've done, I've, I've been going down this rabbit hole of water stuff. And there's so much stuff out there about even improving mood and depression and happiness and all kinds of stuff that the way people have an emotional, spiritual connection to water. Um, there, there's some pretty extensive uh, information out there on that as well. M more of it is theories because not a lot of it hasn't been 
studied yet, but there, there are some studies coming out that show some pretty powerful things. So I think the holistic, you know, the, the more I research health, wellness, longevity, like just living a better, a longer and better life, the more I realize that those buckets are all being checked by XBT. When you really dig into the XBT life, um, it, it really checks all those boxes. And that's why I think it's so amazing. And it didn't start with an attempt of doing that. It was just a, uh, a way that, you know, Laird was exploring and through curiosity was able to, to kind of check off all these pieces. And I think that's why people look to Laird and Gabby as these idols of health and fitness and, and, and uh, success in a lot of areas. Cause you know, they're not just accomplished athletes, but they're also at an older age. They're very fit. They're very um, functional and also very successful in a few other areas of life outside of uh, just being fit. Yeah. Super interesting. And um, yes. And The other part you mentioned in terms of breathing, I heard you somewhere else speaking about many people need to uh, relearn everyday breathing as a starting point already. Can you talk about that and maybe then a little bit about what you learned about in, in all your studies of different uh, techniques, which might make sense at different time points in time? Yeah, I think breathing is by far the most powerful thing that we teach at XPT. Uh, mostly because it applies to everybody and it's such low hanging fruit. Um, but through the research in breathing, what I realize is it's, it's probably our most, if not uh, one of the most dysfunctional patterns, movement patterns that we have. I mean, we know when we look at people being trainers and coming from a fitness perspective, we, when we start to understand movement, we start to look at how, how much modern society and technology and convenience has destroyed people's movement capabilities. And we look at, you know, sitting for 13 to 16 hours a day, which is the average for human, for Americans, um, how that has destroyed people's movement capabilities. So we look to restore that. And I think the reason that breathing goes missed so much is uh, really twofold. One, we're not taught it as fitness professionals. I, I never learned anything about breathing. Uh, you know, you'd get a few things you'd go to a yoga class and they'd say, connect with your breath. And then, mm -hmm. you know, coming from a martial arts background, they talk about like exhale when you strike. And, and that was pretty much it. That was the only time I ever heard anything about breathing throughout my entire career. And then uh, even physical therapy doctors that they're not taught much about this outside of certain respiratory issues. Um, and it's a hard thing to look at because you don't see the residual effects, or excuse me, it, it's hard to pinpoint the residual effects. You know, if, if I go in and I sprain my ankle, I can see very clearly what happened to my ankle. But if I come to the doctor today and I have some sort of issue, let's say it's this tightness I have in my shoulder, my neck, and this pain that I'm having here, they're going to address that pain, that problem, but they can't, they're not going to take a look at the way I've been breathing for the past 15 years. And maybe mm -hmm those 20 to 30,000 breaths I've taken every single day have slowly created this issue. Um, and this is kind of this foundational thing. So because we can't see it like that, it's really hard to assess and it's really hard to look back at it. Um, but when you look at people and you understand the way people should be breathing, and then you realize how it goes wrong so quickly, uh, just from little things like emotional or physical trauma at some point in their life, I always give the example, 
if you did sprain your ankle when you were playing sports in high school, you would go to physical therapy and you would rehab it. And then you would learn how to walk on it and and move it and do all the things so that you wouldn't develop a compensatory pattern. Because if you broke your leg and you just never went back on it, you might have a limp the rest of your life because you've developed this compensatory pattern. That's what happens with breathing, but we don't look at that. If, if you get kicked in the ribs or, you know, you bruise a rib or you, something happens to you physically, uh, or you have some sort of emotional trauma that changes breathing patterns and can creates a compensatory pattern. Nobody ever reteaches you how to do it. So you just do that. That becomes your new normal for the rest of your life. Uh, and when you have these symptoms of dysfunctional breathing, maybe you're lightheaded and fatigued. There are very few doctors that take a look at the way you're breathing to see if that's what the issue is. It, it's usually some sort of medication or something to get you through that. So um, it's such a dysfunctional thing. And the more people I've come across and the more I've learned about it, I've realized that it gets screwed up really easily just from sitting down our whole lives and from those traumas like I talked about. And then we're never retaught how to do it. And it's a foundational thing. I mean, we, the reason we breathe so much is because we have to, we Laird always likes to say you can live weeks without food or even years in some very extreme cases. Um, you can live weeks without food or, or months without food. You can live days without water and you can only live minutes without breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the oxygen, the way we breathe influences every system and every cell in your body. So if it's that important, that crucial to your survival and to every operating system in your body, then if you're doing it dysfunctionally and you're doing it dysfunctionally 15,000 to 20,000 up to even 30, 40,000 times per day, I mean, that's 20,000 dysfunctional reps that are influencing every system in the body. And you tell me that for 15 years, that that's not going to create some, some sort of dysfunction somewhere else. I mean... When you look at it like that, it seems ridiculous that uh, to think about it. But I, I always tell people your, your breathing can either be, and I got this term from actually your mindset, but it, it can either be a weakness or a weapon. So every breath you take is either a step towards dysfunction or a step towards optimization. But there is no middle ground. Everyone thinks they're in the middle until they have some sort of respiratory issue or they start exercising and realize they're out of breath. But there is no middle. You're just not aware of what those sides are. So you're probably taking steps towards dysfunction and you're just not aware of it until you've gone so far down the path that you have to fix the issue. Super interesting. So if, if anyone now listens to this and thinks, do I breathe dysfunctionally or not? Is there any easy indication you or like a kind of a, maybe in quotation marks, a test you, or is there, yeah. How, how do someone can tell by themselves whether they breathe let's say optimal or dysfunctional? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a super simple way, but what I'll tell you first, if you're listening to this, you probably breathe dysfunctionally at some <laughs> point, maybe okay. not every breath, but um, I would bet that 70 to 80% probably are not breathing optimally in every situation. Okay. Uh, and I say that because I've worked with thousands of people, most of them being elite athletes and they we're all breathing with some sort of dysfunction. So, um, but an easy way to, to, to tell is take a look in the mirror, stand up, look in the mirror. And if you can't do this right now, that's fine. And I, all I want you to do is look at yourself 
and take a big, deep breath. Biggest, deepest breath you can. And then let it out. And now take another big, deep breath and hold it and let it out. And now what you probably saw, if you're looking in the mirror, was two big things. One, most of you probably took that big, deep breath through your mouth and went, <gasps> which is not the most optimal breathing pattern. And most of you probably took that big, deep breath up into your upper chest. So what you saw happen would be your chest lifted up towards your your collarbones, it, everything lifted and elevated, your shoulders elevated, your chest probably came forward as you almost arched your back. And those are two major breathing dysfunctions that we look at. One is mouth breathing. And I could talk a little bit about that, why the nose is, is the most optimal pathway 99% of your life, but most of us don't use it. And then two is that what we call vertical breathing or uh, horizontal, excuse me, vertical breathing or um, shallow upper chest breathing. So vertical means you're lifting the shoulders, the chest, the uh, using the neck muscles, and you're using all of these accessory breathing muscles to create ventilation. Uh, the way you really should be breathing is horizontal, meaning, and I got the vertical and horizontal from uh, Dr. Valisa Branich. Uh, and I love that terminology because it makes it so easy because you hear people talk about belly breathing and diaphragmatic breathing a lot, but no one knows what that means. Mm -hmm. That really means diaphragmatic breathing means we're using the diaphragm to create ventilation. And when you use the diaphragm, you should see expansion horizontally, meaning through, and that's why I don't like the term belly, because it's not just belly expanding forward, it's lower abdomen expanding 360 degrees. So horizontal expansion. Um, and those are two, I mean, just those two things, I could spend the rest of the day giving you the, let's say we didn't even talk about the mouth, just horizontal versus vertical breathing. We could spend the rest of the day talking about how that influences your respiratory gas exchange and the actual oxygen available in your body to go to the tissues that, that need oxygen. We could talk about how it influences your movement mechanics, your spinal stabilization, your mobility, um, it's so vast because again, breathing is such a foundational thing that um, that's such a major dysfunction. And most of that comes from what, what I'm doing right now, sitting in a chair, a little bit hunched over without great posture, which really ruins my ability to take this, these uh, horizontal breaths. So that's a super simple test. And um, you know, most people that I take through that, the next piece to that is, Let's say someone has heard belly breathing is good, or, or they know a little bit. They'll kind, they might take that breath in a something that looks a little bit better. So the next thing I do is then I just add a little stress to that. I tell them to breathe like they just finished sprinting up a hill. Most people, you'll see a pretty significant dysfunction when they get into that stressful breathing pattern where they're huffing and puffing through their mouth. Uh, most people's breathing mechanics just completely fall apart. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like I if I was assessing your gait and your movement, I'm going to look at how you walk and then I'm going to have you jog. And what you, when you watch people jog, you'll see everything start to fall apart. A lot of people are dysfunctional in the way they walk, but even the ones who seem to walk okay, then you have them start to jog or sprint and everything starts to fall apart. So uh, those are really two simple tests that you can look at. And um, then that, that, even, that I can even give you the two simplest tips without going so deep into why to do all these things 
two of the biggest tips I give people to start influencing the way you breathe is close your mouth and start breathing through your nose as much as you possibly can all the time at rest. I mean, when you're at rest, you shouldn't be breathing through your mouth at all, period. If you're sitting at your computer, you should be breathing through your nose. When you're sleeping, breathing through your nose. The only times we really need to use the mouth is as a, a reserve tank when we're at our super highest uh, breathing capacity. Uh, excuse me, a super highest like stress level or, or metabolic demand. So during really high intensity activity, we can use the mouth. Uh, but most of us, even if we don't use it at rest, you go for a light jog and you're breathing through your mouth the whole time. So if you can shut your mouth and start breathing through your nose, you'll have, you'll create a lot of influence across a few different areas of breathing that'll influence different uh, areas and then breathe into your belly uh, and breathe horizontally. So those two things are two out of the three of the biggest tips that I give people that no matter what area of breathing you're studying, you're going to run into these same key principles that make the biggest difference across the board. And then of course you can build from there, but you know, it's kind of like get up from your seat and start moving around. It's one of the biggest things you can tell people to do to start getting out of pain and, and feeling better and, and, ha and moving better. Uh, most people don't do it, but if you're not going to start there, then the more advanced stuff is irrelevant to you. Yeah, a lot of people start with posture, right? Especially you were just mentioning about sitting. A lot of people are, you know, have standing desks or are really conscious about how they're sitting and how they're walking. Uh, but breath is kind of almost in the in the back burner when it comes to this. Uh, and I'm pretty sure nine out of ten people are listening to this or we're checking their breath. Or looking or like, oh my God, you know, just check their posture, or check their breath. So uh, that was really, really big time information. So we appreciate that. Uh, you, you know, what's great about the little breath check too, yeah. is it's a posture check as well, because yeah. you, can't, you can't breathe well horizontally if you're sitting with poor posture. Mm. So when you have people just check and, and I do little breath checks like that, but it's, it's also a posture check. I mm -hmm. say take three slow nasal breaths horizontal breaths and then get back to what you're doing and when you do that you naturally are going to sit upright you're going to get access to the diaphragm the belly the ribs you're going to breathe into those spaces and you go back to what you're doing so it's it's developing that awareness that's over time starts to create lifestyle changes before i wanted to get into because uh, you mentioned exposure therapy before we get into that i wanted to talk about real quick a, a post you did on instagram uh, relating to the brain, uh, brainstem and breathing. And you posted this video how uh, every time you took a breath, the brainstem was actually moving. Can you talk a little more about that and, and what the post was about? Um, what did I post? Did I post that or did I repost that? I think you reposted it. Yeah, you reposted it. Yeah, I think that came from Dr. Huberman. Um, Dr. Huberman is, is doing a lot of really good research on uh, mostly the fear response, I think, is his primary research. But mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was in, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe it was an MRI image of yeah, uh, yeah, the brainstem yeah. actually moving with respiration, and it it was just showing. It, I like to share anything that shows how powerful the breath is to create changes physically and psychologically. Um, so anytime that you can actually see, because the the hardest part with breathing is people don't people don't feel it mm -hmm. you know you come to me and you work out and you get really sweaty you feel like you accomplish something if you come yeah. and we sit down and we just breathe for 10 minutes you don't feel like there's anything changing so i like to highlight anything that's going to show that uh, people 
when you are actually going through this breath work, you, you actually can create physiological changes in your body. And if you're doing that on purpose, then you can create long-term changes. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the research on meditation. Mm-hmm. If you can't really feel what's going on, it's hard. But when you look at people who meditate and they're actually seeing changes in the brain, then it's really just hopefully for me helping to get some of the skeptics to say, wow, this is, this looks like something cool could be happening. And therefore I'm willing to give this a shot. Yeah, absolutely. I saw that. I was like, what? I was like, no way that is happening. And it's, it's cool to, to be able to see that, you know, you, you cause especially after this test, right? Most people are, are visualizing that, you know, horizontal movement, they don't want vertical movement. Uh, but then you see a video like that, you're like, what, there's much more happening. Uh, and, and it, like you said, it really amplifies the, the, the process of breathing and the exponential uh, growth of what happens when you start to breathe and the implications of being able to breathe more and breathe better, breathe more effectively uh, and the, and the replications of having to do that more often. So well, yeah, when I saw that video, I was like, Whoa, I was looking at Tim. I was like, Tim, we got, we got to see this guy. Um, yeah, I think ahead. also that's why, part of the reason why the Wim Hof method has taken off so much mm-hmm. because people can feel something. Yeah. You can feel changes going on in your body and therefore people believe that something's happening positively. So mm-hmm. whenever you can, you can highlight those things. And that's why I like some of the studies on like biofeedback where they took people and they had them breathe and they were watching a biofeedback machine that was, um, that basically was measuring the resonant frequencies of their cardiovascular system. And they were trying to breathe in sync with those frequencies. So they were matching their respiratory frequencies with their cardiovascular system. And then they're measuring things like HRV, blood pressure, uh, heart rate. And you can actually see the changes where people, their heart rate and blood pressure are dropping and their HRV is increasing as they're matching those frequencies. So again, it just gives some visual representation to help people buy into the fact that this stuff is, is really that powerful. And for me, a lot of times I show people if it's that powerful to create, uh, you know, dysfunction, then if we can optimize that system, it's that powerful to create uh, optimization as well. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the exposure therapy that you get uh, that you guys talk about in XPT. So we primarily use, you know, it's funny. It's, it's in our recover section because breathe, move, and recover are, are our key elements. But we really use hot and cold therapy way more than recovery, um, you know, four way more than recovery and probably use it for other reasons more than we do even as a recovery element. But we use exposure to extreme heat and extreme cold. And and really that comes from the the simple way to think about why, when, when people, if, if they're not familiar at all with it, why do we get someone in a 35 degree ice bath and sit in there? And why do we put people in the 220 degree sauna? And it just comes down to stress. What we're trying to do is we're trying to induce stress, different types of stress to the body to force it to respond. That's how we get better from everything. Why do you go to the gym and get sweaty? Because when you go to the gym and you run on the treadmill for 30 minutes, you're stressing your cardiovascular system, your muscles, you're you're stressing the body and therefore the body has to adapt to that stress. And that's how you get better endurance and better health and fitness and all that. So when you use these environmental stressors, these are also stress to the system. And they're stressors that our body is designed to uh, face and therefore adapt to, but we don't face them anymore because we've removed those. And, and that's one of the big problems in our society today is, is people take 
a, you know, we have this approach with stress that all stress is bad and, and our mind is designed, you know, our, our biology, our psychology, it's all designed for one purpose to keep us alive, mm-hmm. not to help us thrive. That's why we have so many of these defense mechanisms and so many, that's why it's so much easier to sit on your ass and watch Netflix than it is to go to the gym because your brain doesn't want you to go to the gym. Your brain wants you to sit on your butt because it's comfortable. There's no risk. And therefore, but what we don't realize is that when we mitigate all these risks, because we don't have to face any of these, we're actually doing long-term harm. But in the short term, you know, it feels good to do those things. And it feels good because from an evolutionary standpoint, your body wants to mitigate risk so that you can survive. So um, I got on a tangent there, but we've, we've taken out these environmental stressors because we have everything climate controlled these days. So you basically don't ever have to face extreme heat or extreme cold. So all of these systems that were designed in your body to help you deal with that and keep you alive when the temperature dropped down to 45 degrees at night and you only had a fire to keep you warm, uh, you had all these things that kept you alive. So you didn't just die in those, in all of those, you know, different climate changes. And when we stimulate some of those systems in the body, they're also responsible for a lot of other processes. So we can stimulate these hormones and gene programs and uh, proteins and and different um, systems through exposure to heat, exposure to cold. And when you stimulate those things, they're also responsible for other processes in the body, like cleaning up damaged cells, uh, like regulating neurochemical pathways, um, so the cool part about that is when we start to stimulate these things, the, the theory at least, which is not proven, but the theory is that by stimulating these things, we're going to adapt to the to those processes and we're going to become better at all of these secondary things. And therefore, um, we're going to live better. We're going to live longer. We're going to mitigate disease risk, imp- improve our immune system function, a lot of that kind of stuff. That's the, the long-term theory. And that's yet to be proven, but there's a lot of really, really cool research that's promising. Uh, the other reason we do it is from a psychological perspective. We use exposure, and I'd say probably the primary reason we do it at our experiences, we use exposure to these elements to put people in a situation, particularly the ice bath, to put people in a situation where they're going to have to face extreme stress. When you get someone in a 32 degree ice bath who's not used to it, there is all kinds of fear and panic and anxiety that comes up and, and, and physical sensations of pain, but you're not in any real harm. I mean, you are, if you stayed in there for an hour, but we're not going to keep you in there for an hour. So you're feeling like you're really in, in danger, but you're not. And because we have this controlled environment where we can now work on all of these kind of secondary tools and these, these real time tools that allow you to mitigate that emotional response and that stress response things like the breath being the most powerful um, and also psychological uh, tactics that we teach people to deal with that. And the, the cool part about it is these tools not only change our relationship to stress. So we start to adapt to these types of tools and therefore it changes our relationship to these emotional responses, but it also gives us the power the confidence to train these real time tools uh, to help us, deal with other stressors when we do face them. So we change our brain's relationship to stress. We change the way that we see ourselves. You know, it, we've seen people, it, it really changes their identity because they become the type of person who does difficult, challenging things and overcomes them. 
and builds the confidence behind their tools um, to get out of these situations. And that's where I think things like the water training and the, the ice bath particularly create massive changes in people's lives in areas that we can't even we can't even comprehend. We have no studies. All I have is anecdotes, but I know from myself personally, I mean, this is why the XBT life is what I live. You know, I, I do create curriculums and certifications for other training companies as well, but the XPT life will always be the thing that I follow. This is how I live my life. And this is where I've seen it create changes in people in their relationships, in their, their work life, uh, just in you know, massive implications across a, a broad spectrum, way outside of just the physiological benefit. Um, so that's really why we use the exposure and the heat is just a different type. You know, you, you've got the immediate stress of the ice bath that actually gets a little easier as you kind of ease into it. And then you have the opposite with the sauna where you have the immediate, it feels good, but it starts to become increasingly difficult as you increase the stress. And those things create different psychological changes, but also different physiological changes. And when we pair them together, we find that it, it improves people's adherence to both of them as well. Yeah, I mean, I I did the uh, cold bath. Maybe well, how long ago? Ten, like two months, weeks ago, four weeks ago, a month ago. And I can definitely relate to the uh, one, the stress, the anxiety, the get the hell out of here, the the fire flight. Like I was there a minute and ten seconds, and it felt like ten hours. Um, and I can definitely agree with the stress adaptations and the psychological, uh, almost like psychological psychological warfare that you have to. Um, basically implement right um but and like you mentioned you don't get into you, i think we we deal with this in a, in micro uh doses right uh your boss uh, uh yells at you uh you're in debt uh you're having relationship issues uh business isn't going well traffic like we have these in micro stressors that we don't necessarily see them as a big deal until they kind of bottle up and it's like three rounds on the road and we're feeling anxious or depressed or uh, maybe we're unmotivated. But when you have something like cold water or heat or a really hard workout or uh, something that's really, really uncomfortable, that's like it brings you to the present as like in zero seconds. Um and that's when your body has to say, okay, am I in danger or am I not? And then that's when the conversation within your head starts to happen. And like, okay, what, how can I handle this? Do I have the tools? Do I have the equipment? Do I have the, do I have the prep in order to deal with this? Uh, <laughs> that moment when I was in that tub, freezing cold water, I was trying, that was my first time. I mean, I had done it earlier in my collegiate career, uh, uh, with baseball, but you were in there with 50 degrees and you were in there for like three minutes. So not, nothing compares to 35 degrees. And it feels like, for lack of a better word, your your uh, gonads are about to freeze and your heart's about to stop. Like, it, it's crazy because I haven't felt like crying. I'm like, I'm not a crier and I'm about to cry in front of this lady that's sitting in the tub in front of me. Um, but I definitely agree. I think a lot of people, when they see somebody in ice tub, yeah, there are recovery benefits to, to ice. But I think the biggest thing that I know I stepped away from is the psychological side to it, where as soon as I got out, I was like, wow, that wasn't that bad. And you kind of feel like, man, if I would have waited a little bit more, if I would have controlled myself a little bit more, if I would have prepped a little more, visualized uh, how I was going to do it, um, I would have done it a little better. So, But then you start to see, okay, that was difficult. And I was able to handle myself, 
So you start to build this composure, you start to build this trust, this this intuition to handle uh, stress. Uh, so yeah, when you started mentioning that about stress adaptation, psychological purpose, uh, yeah, I definitely connect with that, and and I think a lot more people should do that. Maybe you know, not, maybe the thirty degrees isn't for everybody, uh, but giving. I know I think you posted recently something about making putting yourself in more uncomfortable situations uh, so that you basically like a workout, right? It's almost like a mental, emotional workout uh, anytime that you do that, right? Where you're trying to really test the skills that you have with meditation, with your breath, the conversation you're having within your mind uh, to handle a stress like that. And and definitely it changed me. It changed the way uh, you start to handle problems. It changes the way your perspective of what problems are and how to uh, adapt to that. So yeah, those are super powerful words. Um, this last part is, uh, what we call thanks. So there's three thank yous we like to give. And the first one goes to you, uh, PJ. Thank you for taking the time to uh, jump on this podcast to talk to me and Tim, to give the listeners and to our, to, uh, to us as well. Um, a whole lot of education, a lot, a whole lot of information, uh, valuable, actionable items, both in breathing, both in reading, both in, you know, wide variations of topics. So thank you very much for taking the time, uh, to be on this podcast. The second thank you go to our listeners. Thank you for giving us the opportunity, uh, to share, uh, more value more knowledge, more education. Uh, for taking the time to listen to this episode. You could have been doing anything. You could have been listening to Audible. You could have been watching a movie. You could have been watching the new Rambo. But you took the time to watch, or should I say, you took the time to listen to this episode with PJ. Um, so we thank you very much uh, for taking that time. The last thank you goes to our clients, goes to our students, goes to our patients, goes to those that we get to work with on a daily basis. Uh, again, we really, truly love what we do for most of us in uh in our positions um, and to have the opportunity to share that value and to have that value being uh, honored. And we, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate you giving us the time to, to share our passion, to share our skills um, and to really help people on a day-to-day basis. So thank you very much. With that being said, this is connect and move radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with passionate people just like you and would love the opportunity to do the same for others. So please take the time right now to leave a five-star review and help spread the word about this podcast. Thank you so much for your support and see you on the next episode. Hold up.